Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tilly with you. And Katrina Blowers, you've got a briefing today on the backlash about Japan releasing radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, this is such a fascinating story. Um, it involves a million tonnes of wastewater that's been stored at the nuclear plant since it was destroyed by a tsunami back in 2011. The UN's nuclear safety watchdog has actually signed off on this mass release. Uh, the nuclear plant's operators are assuring everyone it's going to be treated and safe. But a lot of people are really worried about this. In South Korea, there's even been a mass buy-up of salt and seaweed. You can't find that stuff in supermarkets anywhere. And uh, Japanese fishermen are worried that their industry is going to be completely decimated by this. This concept of continuing to use the ocean as the ultimate dumping ground for everything that we don't want on land is not only wrong for us, but it's also wrong for future generations. Yeah, so I'll be interviewing a marine biologist who's been part of an expert panel evaluating the science of this plan. That is in the second half of this episode, Tom. All right, well, first, let's get into today's headlines. It is Wednesday, July 12. We have a big update in the Ben Robert Smith story. The Victoria Cross winning SAS war veteran is appealing the loss of his defamation case. Last month, the federal court judge dismissed the case, ruling that reports by the nine newspapers of him committing war crimes were substantially true to a civil standard. And now he's appealing the judgment. This just keeps going on and on. Yeah, so the saga is not over. It began with the articles in 2018. Then in 2019, um, he sued for defamation. As we know, that was one of the most expensive and historic defamation trials in Australian history. Took several years. And now it will continue. The appeal will take months. Plus, there's the legal fight over costs for this defamation case, which are estimated to be in the order of $25 million as well. So that's a fight between nine newspapers and uh, Kerry Stokes, the owner of Channel 7. Two weeks ago, we had one of the journalists behind the original stories, Nick McKenzie, on the briefing. Uh, He was very relieved it was all over. This had been a tough fight for him. He'd released a book about it, but I think that relief was short-lived because this saga is back on again. So the trial over the White Island volcano tragedy has kicked off in New Zealand. Yesterday, the Auckland court played the footage of the moments before and after the 2019 volcano erupted and killed 22 people, including 17 Australians. The court also heard that tourists received no health and safety warnings before they landed on the country's most active volcano. So the island's owners, which is three brothers, Andrew, James and Peter Buttle, Their company and two tour operators are on trial for allegedly failing to adequately protect tourists and staff. Each of the companies face a fine of $1.4 million and the brothers face a maximum fine of $280,000 and the trial is expected to run for 16 weeks. There is the most incredible, but it is, uh, I have to tell you, it is super harrowing uh, documentary about this on Netflix, which you can look up. It's um, directed by Ron Howard, who's, you know, won an Oscar for the movie Beautiful Mind. So it is incredibly shot. It has heaps of iPhone footage and also interviews with survivors. 
if you want a real picture of what it would be like to be in the middle of a volcanic explosion, you really feel like you were there. I, I can't recommend this highly enough. And also the bravery, particularly of the helicopter pilots. Um, also, there was a, um, a pilot of a light plane who just flew around and around and around. Um, they just didn't give up on getting all those people off the island. There's been a setback for Ukraine at NATO which has refused to give Ukraine a timeline on when it can join the military alliance with President Volodymyr Zelensky calling this absurd. So the alliance agreed to make Ukraine a member all the way back in 2008, but still won't say when. And Zelensky says that without a time frame, Russia will be motivated to continue its war the heart of all of this, and I guess at the heart of NATO, um, Article 5 of its founding chapter, which everyone keeps going back to, which states that each member agrees that an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against them all. And it requires that member states join in on defending the country mm. under attack. So instead of membership, it looks instead likely that Ukraine might be offered closer quote-unquote, integration with NATO, which is kind of like saying, you can't officially be a member, but you can sit with us. Yeah, so if NATO let Ukraine join properly, it means they would have to go to war with Russia, basically, which they clearly don't yeah. want to do. Yeah, it's interesting. There's another big story about NATO this week, which is talk about it expanding into Asia. And our former Prime Minister, Paul Keating lashed out earlier this week saying that the head of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, is a supreme fool and that he's an accident waiting to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Just not, you know, not calming his farm in his later years. He, he can concoct the most incredible insults, can't he? He can. And Australians are the sixth largest consumers of illicit drugs per capita, according to wastewater that's been tested by the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission. So this report found increased consumption of methyl amphetamine, cocaine, MDMA, fentanyl and ketamine has increased in both capital city and regional sites. Uh, Sydney leads the country in consumption of cocaine and MDMA. Melbourne leads the way in heroin and fentanyl fentanyl and ketamine. Isn't it weird how different cities have different drug profiles? Yeah, seems like Sydney likes its uppers with cocaine and MDMA and Melbourne likes its downers with heroin, fentanyl and ketamine. <laughs> I wonder if that's got anything to do with the weather. Oh, who knows? Um, it's funny, like this report, it doesn't actually release the names or locations of particular wastewater facilities. So they're not, you know, singling any particular areas out. Mm. But it did say that there is one Sydney site in particular, which recorded a particularly high cocaine consumption. That's probably got a lot of people scratching their heads wondering where that is. Uh, I mean, what are you suggesting? Bondi, CBD, <laughs> King's Cross? <laughs> Well, I guess if you correlate it with where the drug busts are happening, which in, in recent times has been in Sydney CBD, you might be able to join the dots. All right. Cheers, Tom. I'm about to dive into this briefing topic about Japan's plans to release radioactive wastewater into the ocean. In 2011, an undersea earthquake caused a massive tsunami off the coast of Japan, and that prompted one of the worst nuclear accidents in history. Meanwhile, on the coast, 
Tsunami alarms blasted to the devastation yet to come. Well, this could be a Chernobyl in the making. We are now going into uncharted territory. We are thinking the unthinkable. Warning of a possible nuclear reactor meltdown. Nearly 20,000 people died and the Fukushima nuclear plant went into a series of meltdowns with radiation leaking into the atmosphere. Since then, the operators have had to use water to continuously cool the highly radioactive melted fuel and fuel debris. The problem is that water then became contaminated and there are now 1.3 million tonnes of that wastewater sitting in huge storage tanks at the plant and TEPCO, the operators, say they're running out of space and need to get rid of it. So they're treating it to remove nearly all the radioactive material, then releasing it into the ocean over coming months, which they say will make it as safe as drinking water. The UN's nuclear watchdog, the International Atomic Energy Agency, has given the plan the green light. But a lot of people from neighbouring countries, South Korea, Pacific Island nations, and even some scientists are very, very worried. And that group of scientists includes marine biologist Bob Richmond from the University of Hawaii, who joins us on the briefing now. Bob Richmond, thank you so much for joining us. All right. Well, first of all, why is the operator of the Fukushima plant wanting to release this water at all? In 2011, there was a large tsunami caused by an offshore earthquake uh, from Japan. Um, that caused devastation to local communities, but also to uh, the Fukushima nuclear power plant. And there were many errors made, a lack of adequate preparation, failures for uh, TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, to evaluate the true risk. They were actually told that they could expect a tsunami wave of up to 15 meters based on the geology and the tectonic activity in the area. And that's exactly what happened. And so this A never should have happened because if TEPCO had listened to their own scientists as well as the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, that warned them, this shouldn't have happened. But the reality is it did. And so as a result of the damage from the tsunami, three of the nuclear reactors at the power plant um, were damaged and are in meltdown. And so water has to be used to cool down the cores. And this water, even though a fair amount was immediately discharged upon the accident, ever since then, the cooling water as well as groundwater that's infiltrating the three reactors in meltdown has been collected on site. So it's in over a thousand tanks. And at the moment, it's over 1.3 million tons of contaminated water. Their plan is to treat the water using what's called an advanced liquid processing system, or ALPS, and then begin releasing the treated contaminated water into the Pacific Ocean a kilometer offshore through a pipeline uh, starting as early as next month, August of 2023. So the operators say that by releasing it this way, it will further treat and dilute it, which they say will make it even safer than international standards. Um, the International Atomic Energy Agency also says the environmental impact will be negligible. So why then is there so much fear and concern about this? I began my involvement with this issue about a year and a half ago. Uh, my opinion after studying this issue and actually going to Fukushima last February 
is that at very best, it's premature at this time due to major questions and data gaps that continue. And that as a marine biologist who studies ocean life and um, the importance of this ocean life to people throughout the Pacific and throughout the world, I think it's ill-advised and there are much better ways of going forward. It's also important to realize that as the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, just released a report and their director general has made statements about what their view is that if things go to plan, which is an assumption that I cannot accept based on everything I've seen so far, that they will meet acceptable standards. They also are very careful in his press conferences, he stated that the IAEA does not recommend this plan. They do not endorse the plan and they actually do not have the authority to approve the plan. If I went to my doctor and after the doctor said, all right, here's your treatment plan, but I don't recommend it or endorse it, I would be very worried about going forward with it. If I went to buy a car and the salesman said, well, here's a great car, but I'm not willing to recommend it or endorse it. These are words that I think people need to take into account. If you look at the history, and again, as a scientist, I'm data-driven, so that's what I'm looking for is the science. But I can't help but do my due diligence and understand how it even got to this point. And so every step across the board, we're seeing things that worry us, uh, red flags that go up in terms of the science. The idea that dilution is the solution to pollution has been disproven many times. And it's important, I think, uh, for anyone to understand, especially the people of Australia, that the oceans support life on Earth. Uh, 50% of our oxygen comes from it. And we're not talking about painting on a clean canvas. The oceans are already severely compromised by pollution, everything from mercury to pesticides and heavy metals. Plastics are a big problem. Global climate change with uh, massive coral bleaching events tied to elevated temperatures, ocean acidification overfishing. And so we look at an ocean that's already seriously compromised in terms of the ocean health. And then we need to look at the health of the people who depend on the ocean. So it's not as if this new level of stressors are going to be superimposed on a, a pristine system. They're not. The system is already in trouble. And for that reason, this concept of continuing to use the ocean as the ultimate dumping ground for everything that we don't want on land is not only wrong for us, but it's also wrong for future generations. And so there's inconsistencies in the treatment as well that we are concerned about. But in the end, the precautionary principle says in the absence of data proving something is safe, you can't simply think that it will be. As we say in the work that I do in ecotoxicology, an absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And so for that reason, I have very strong concerns, and I think everyone should, about the plan going forward in its present state. Is it a fait accompli that the plan is going to go ahead? I mean, given there is so much concern, not just from scientists, but also the people of different nations, South Korea being one, is this going to go ahead? Is there any time left to, to wind this back? Um, you know, I'll be candid because that's my only value as a scientist. I'm not a diplomat. And so looking at the situation from the very beginning, I think this was considered a fait accompli before we even started involved in it. The decision was made, I think, years ago, and everything we've seen so far is pushing that this is the only solution that Japan and TEPCO are going to consider. Uh, we've come back at them and the International Atomic Energy Agency, 
in this particular instance, I have serious problems in what I'm seeing. And if you look at the IAEA website, it even says that their mandate, their mission is to promote the non-aggressive use of nuclear technologies. So they're not really an independent group And when it comes to things like this. Their willingness to say that we don't think it's going to be a problem, but we're not willing to recommend or endorse the plan is hardly what I would call high praise for it. And our assessment on the panel is that this is a political and a financial decision. But in the end, other people's bad behavior is not an excuse for me to behave badly. And, you know, what really strikes me in the end after reviewing all this, working with Pacific Island leaders going to the site, it was a terrible tragedy. And I get that. Uh, my heart goes out to the people of Japan who have suffered from the effects of the tsunami. It happened and we can't go backwards. But challenges are also opportunities. And this is a very unique opportunity for Japan, TEPCO, and the International Atomic Energy Agency to up their game, to be visionary and proactive. This is not the first nuclear accident, nor will it be the last, but on a scale of one to seven, with seven being the worst, there have only been two number sevens in the history of nuclear power plants. The first was Chernobyl, and the second was Fukushima. Fukushima is only about a tenth of the radionuclide discharges was seen in Chernobyl. But whereas Chernobyl was mostly atmospheric and terrestrial, Fukushima is overridingly marine. And we can certainly do better. At a time when we look at ocean health in decline and the effects of the people who depend on the ocean also being affected, we really need to do a better job of not using the ocean as a dumping ground for everything and perhaps using this uh, tragedy and this challenge to improve the way um, nuclear power plants are sited, protected, that's going forward, but how you treat an accident when it occurs. And this is a very big concern for me is the idea of releasing the water and then doing what they're calling monitoring. I don't think their protocols are up to the standard that I would like to see. You're never going to get the genie back in the bottle. There's nothing you can do to remediate for that. But I think the politics and the finances are uh, driving this bus. And unless there is severe pushback by other nations and the world community at large, I think it will likely go forward. That was marine biologist Bob Richmond from the University of Hawaii. And the planned release could begin happening as soon as next month. TEPCO says it'll only be once the water meets strict safety standards and is then checked from third-party inspectors. Only then will it be pumped out from the ocean floor some two kilometres from the Fukushima plant. So you've just heard a pretty impassioned view against the release, but it is worth pointing out that those for it are arguing it is safer to release the treated water than keep it stored in large tanks where it could be under threat from typhoons, tsunamis and even earthquakes. Um, another earthquake could happen in that region. So with such heated and opposing views on the science of all of this, this is definitely going to be one to watch. Listener.